Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Welcome to the Commonwealth Club. I'm George Hammond, Chair of the Humanities Forum, which organized this event. Um, We have a special treat today. Uh, We're going to talk about how to make really important uh, health and medical life choices. Um, There's a lot of uh, misinformation, as everybody knows, out there. And so we have today, uh, as the 12th Lumberg Institute Lecture, Dr. George Lundberg, the founder, who was also, uh, you know, 25 years ago, was the editor-in-chief of uh, the Journal of American Medical Association, JAMA. And we have the current chief of the um, JAMA, of the same journal. And by online from London, we have the chief of the British Medical Journal. Can't get anybody closer to who spends their time on how to discriminate between what medical information we can trust and what medical information we can't. And I will let Dr. Lundberg introduce our speakers. Thank you very much, George. Thank you very much, uh, Mr. Hammond, and thank you, Commonwealth Club, for hosting us for 12 years. It's quite a long time, and we haven't missed a year. So thank you very much. It's been a good collaboration. I'm the, the uh, president and chair of the Lundberg Institute, which a, it was a very poor 501c3 nonprofit in Los Gatos, which has a credo of one patient, one physician, one moment, one decision. Let it be a shared decision between doctor and patient, informed by the best evidence and considering cost. Today, we will address how to decide which medical and health information you should trust. Your life could depend on it. Fake news. Alternative facts, overly hyped breakthroughs, irreproducible results, preprints, gaslighting the medical literature, predatory publishers, what to do. Often bewildering even to trained professionals, and then you add politics to that mess, and it really gets hard. The National Library of Medicine publishes a thing called PubMed, which has in it 30,000 medical journal titles worldwide. There are countless newspapers, magazines, radio outlets, television stations, and networks, the internet writ large, social media, a morass, a cacophony, 24-7 breaking news. Our speakers are the best in the business. They, we, spend all day, every day trying to figure this stuff out. And we're going to try to share with you how we try to do that. Sometimes we get it right, and sometimes we get it wrong, too. Born in Germany, Dr. Kirsten Bibbins Domingo, on July 1 of this year, became the editor-in-chief of JAMA, with responsibility for the JAMA network, which is something like 15 or so medical journals. After her undergraduate at Princeton, she's been at UCSF pretty much forever, Got her MD there, her PhD there, had academic appointments up to an endowed professorship, a vice deanship. She's basically done it all in a rich and varied career, but now she has a new episode and a new learning experience in front of her that she's just becoming immersed in. So thank you very much for being with us. Thanks for having me. On the other side of the pond, we have with us Dr. Cameron Abbasi, editor-in-chief for the counterpart of the JAMA in the UK called the BMJ, 
Mr. Hammond called it the British Medical Journal, and once upon a time it's called that, but it was changed. You want to know why? For marketing reasons. It took too much words to call it the British Medical Journal, so they named it the BMJ. Dr. Abbasi was born in Pakistan, raised in Yorkshire, graduated medicine at Leeds, trained in internal medicine. He's been in editing for more than 20 years, and his current affiliation academically is Imperial College of London. Dr. Abbasi, thank you very much for being with us remote from London. And we know it's late there, and we appreciate you're taking time to be here. You don't look that tired, but <laughs> we'll, we'll see how you do as we go. Disclosures. That's a big thing in this medical information game, disclosures. I consider myself a friend of Dr. Abbasi's predecessor, his predecessor's predecessor, who he says pretty much trained him, Richard Smith, and his predecessor's predecessor's predecessor, Stephen Locke, whose idea it was it caused me to invent the peer review Congress that we all attended in Chicago <laughs> last week. I sat in Dr. Bibbins Domingo's chair for 17 years, and I know well her predecessor and her predecessor's predecessor. As I mentioned, disclosure, we were together last week in Chicago, and we were at the International Congress of Peer Review and Scientific Publication. I have it here to show to you. More than 400 medical editors from 37 countries got together to present results or research on what this thing is, the trust aspect, and all about that. And there was a lot of interesting stuff presented there. Um, Dr. Bimmons Domingo, would you please give us your opening statement? Mm, wow. Okay. Well, first of all, it's a, a, a distinct pleasure to be here um, and uh, to be here with uh, my two colleagues uh, to talk about an issue that is really facing all of us. Uh, we are in an environment of information overload. Um, we are in a position always, all of us, trying to discern what is important, what's not important, how do we know what we can trust, the way we consume information has changed radically over time. We can get things faster, but faster isn't always better. And in this environment, um, we not only have more information, we also have more misinformation. We know there is organized attempts to create false information, often called disinformation. And then even when you step back from that, we have what was referred to at the Peer Review Congress as spin, or people who want to get their facts out there, but in a way that convinces you that their particular drug, their intervention, what they do is, is something that you should use. Um, and when you, uh, one, one easy way for the three of us to sit here is to say, well, we are, we represent the industry you can trust, the peer review medical journals. Um, but even the way we think about that um, is, uh, is complicated by all of these factors. And we are in a business, I think, of putting information out there ultimately for clinicians, for consumers, for the general public to consume and understanding how even if uh, we represent uh, trust, uh, trusted sources of information, how it breaks through the noise that is all of the information, I think 
is the challenge for us and how that happens in a way that still allows for timely uh, results to come out to improve health and for clear and concise and consumable results can come out to improve health, I think is the challenge for all of us. Thank you very much. Nicely stated. Uh, Cameron, how about your opening statement? So uh, first of all, uh, good afternoon. I think it's afternoon uh, where you are. It's evening where I am. And uh, good to be with you again. Um, uh, and I enjoyed your company at the Peer Review Congress. Um, it's a very interesting and important topic. Uh, I mean, I mean, Dr. Onberg, you, you, you harked back to, to past times. I think, um, you know, when I started in editing, and I think possibly you were the editor of JAMA uh, then, um, I think things were a little less complicated. Um, yeah, we had newspapers we trusted, we had publications we trusted. We also felt that medical journals uh, were a trusted source of information um, and we relied on the peer review process. In those intervening 25 years, a lot has changed. Um, and, and one of the things that has changed is that uh, social media has become very, very dominant in terms of uh, sharing and exchanging information uh, and marketing of information. And that actually has, has changed the game utterly and things are now completely out of the control of the established media and established publications. Um, on one hand, it's good. It's a good thing. It's democratised uh, you know, people's ability to share information, uh, to talk about issues, to exchange knowledge, to exchange evidence. Uh, but at the same time, it's made it, it's increased the noise, made everything much, much more difficult. So we're faced with a kind of an unprecedented challenge. Um, and at the same time, um, you know, in that in those 25 years, we've done research on peer review, more and more research on peer review. And we realized it isn't perfect. We knew it wasn't perfect, but but every, every all, you know, all the work that we've done. Um, tells us that it isn't isn't perfect is the best thing that we have to decide uh, what's the best research what's the best evidence to rely upon but even then um, you know it's not entirely uh, that you can take a paper and just uh, take what it says and uh, and act upon it straight away so you have to look at the totality totality of evidence you have to be able to appraise an individual paper so it's very very complicated in terms of even going to medical journals and thinking they have information that I can rely upon. Well, they do, but it has to be taken in context and you have to be able to evaluate the quality of the evidence that's being presented to you. So social media, first of all, I said, has changed the landscape. Our understanding of peer review has changed uh, the landscape. And also, I think, you know, in, in a way, it was very clear, if I go back 25 years, there were certain publications, non-medical, non-scientific non publications that you felt were entirely trustworthy. Um, I think, certainly, uh, some of that trust in, in newspapers, in, in the media, outside medical journals, has also been eroded. And that's allowed scope um, for disinformation and misinformation to take hold. So we're facing a challenge like we've never faced before. And unfortunately, there are many stakeholders who are keen to spread and disseminate mis misinformation. And you mentioned some of those, Dr. Lundberg, but if I could just categorize a few. Um, I mean, number one, you talked about spin. Yes, companies that are in the business 
of, of, of putting spin around their products, marketing them in a very aggressive way so that we believe about the benefits and the hype uh, around them, but talking down the side effects and the adverse events. And the pandemic has really brought that into sharp focus. Um, but also social media companies and their power has had a played a major role uh, in terms of uh, either limiting information, but also spreading the wrong kinds of information. And that's something we can talk about. We've got very personal experience of that um, at the BMJ. And social media itself, as I said, has allowed individuals and groups to spread information in an uncontrolled way. Um, and also governments um, have certainly during the pandemic been very prominent in terms of trying to sell a particular message. So there's lots of misinformation out there. How do we deal with it? Well, but very simply, I think there are three values that we need to kind of hold dear. Number one is try is, is try to put is try to value things that are evidence based, and that means trying to understand what is evidence based. Number two is is transparency and openness around who's providing that information, who's funding the generation of that information, the sharing of that information. And number three is you mentioned patients. I think when patients are involved in, in, in generating and creating information, that improves the quality of it. So these are just some broad themes to be begin with. But to summarise, all of us here are faced with an immense challenge. And it's a very difficult one. And um, it's one that I don't think we have control of. Thank you very much. Uh, comprehensive and challenging. Now let's try to dissect it a little bit. The rest of this program, I anticipate to be a question and answer program in which I ask the questions and none of the speakers have been informed in advance what any of these questions are. So that is they'll, true. <laughs> they'll be winging it based upon what they know and I'm trusting them to share what they know and if they don't know to say so. And we have, I have a lot of them here. We can go till six, but at the other hand, we only have, so probably we can't do that. So Dr. Abbasi will be asleep by then. <laughs> yeah. I'm still on U.S. time. Concise. So <laughs> some of these are real simple. Some of them uh, not so simple, but try to make them fairly simple and concise answers. And then you can talk to each other however we go. Anyway, so Dr. Cameron, uh, Dr. Abbasi, back in London, I'm going to do an anecdote for you. Pretend you're a well-informed patient, not a physician, okay. and I'll have one for you as well, uh, uh, Kristen. And here's yours. It's a very quick one. An overweight man in London sees a report on Sky News about a new anti-obesity drug. His National Health Service GP is not prescribing that drug for him, who should he trust? I mean, there's a very simple answer to that. I mean, his GP. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> okay, that's I mean, your answer. He should trust uh, his doctor. Yeah, I think so. Because well, it has well, a doctor-patient relationship and he better trust it. Well, no, there's, there's a reason for that, though, uh, Dr. Lundberg, which is that in the UK, you talked about the UK, um, drugs are approved through a, a process of appraising the evidence in relation to their approval. Um, and so, yeah, this particular drug was approved. Okay, but his physician was not prescribing it. 
Okay, well, if if that's the case, then I think um, he needs to ask his physician why he does not qualify you know, for that drug, why the physician doesn't think he should have that drug. And it may be that there's something about that. This is quite a complex question. Should he do any research before he challenges his doctor? Well, yeah, obviously. He's think, an intelligent person. Yeah, certainly he should. I mean, I think first of all, he. I mean, all right, fine. If, he, if he's gone to his GP and the GP said, no, you can't have this drug, then I think, of course, he needs to go away and, and the drug is available uh, in the UK for prescription. Then, of course, he needs to, if he hasn't taken, he or she have, hasn't taken the opportunity to ask his GP why he's not allowed to have the drug, then I think... So he, you he, think it's okay for the patient to come informed and ask his GP, why am I not on this drug? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think we... we okay. Because, okay, there's your yeah. answer. That's fine. Yeah. I have a different anecdote yeah. for Kirsten. Is it harder? Or? You're coming through O'Hare Airport, as we both did in the last three days. You see a sign on a billboard there which says, M.D. Anderson, big letters cancer lined through and then medical center. Mm -hmm. I'm a, a, a woman, or you're a woman, who do, go, going through there, you see, wow, there's no cancer at the MD Anderson Medical Center. My sister, your sister, is currently undergoing treatment at Rush Medical Center in Chicago. Should they quickly go to Houston? <laughs> well... Let's just uh, accept the fact that in both of these scenarios, um, we all live in an environment where, where we are consuming information related to our health and our decisions about our health all the time. And to pretend that we don't, I don't think is useful. I'm a practicing general internist. I see patients here at San Francisco General Hospital. My patients come to me with information they have read. They challenge me if I'm not prescribing a medication. I look at the billboards. I practice at UCSF. UCSF has lovely billboards as you drive across the Bay Bridge. So we have to, we can't um, pretend that we don't live in an environment where information is out there, where people have an interest, MD Anderson does, UCSF does, in an interest in conveying information. And I think the challenge for us as consumers is to understand the point of view of UCSF, of MD Anderson, and then to think about how to process that in how we make our own personal decisions. So I would welcome the conversations with a patient who comes to me and says, I read about this drug, why aren't I getting it? I welcome the ads, but to be consumers, we have to be uh, informed consumers of what all that information means. And that is the challenge. Thank you very much. The lesson for our audience is consider the source. What source made that information what it is when it gets to you? Now we're going to look at the flow of how that source happens and what might be good, what might be concerning about that flow. We start with money. When research is done, somebody has to pay for the research. There are three main sources of funding for research in medical information generation. And one is government in both of our countries, big ones. One is industry in both of our countries, and one is philanthropies of various kinds in both of our countries. Now, does it make a difference in terms of trust in the information that comes out of those studies, in your view, as to where the funding source was? Kristen? 
It helps me to understand a bit more about the perspective uh, from uh, from which a particular communication is happening. Do you want to know that then? I absolutely want to know that. Cameron? Yeah, you want to know the source. Yeah, absolutely. But we, um, can I just talk a little more about this? We once did a study at the BMJ uh, where we sent an identical paper to two different groups of, of people. Um, and on one of the one of the papers, the source was a didn't sound like a company, like a like a pharmaceutical company. But on in the other group, we did say that the the source of funding was a, a fictitious pharmaceutical company. And then we asked people if they trusted how much they trusted the the, the paper. And it turned there was no, nothing different in the two papers except that one was said it was funded by the, the pharmaceutical company, and people trusted that paper less. Um, so yes, of course, it's important, but there are certain sources that uh, the population intrinsically trusts less than others. Okay, lesson for the audience again: funding source. Follow the money; it does matter. But for, we editors say no; it's the methods and the data that matter, not the funding source. But nonetheless, one needs to have this little thing up here saying, "Well." Might they have fudged the date a little? Or... Well, I don't necessarily mean that means that we think that they fudged the data. I think that not knowing the perspective from which uh, a scientific publication comes means that you don't have a full set of information to evaluate it. So, that's so disclosure is, is the most important thing because it gives you all of the information uh, to judge that. And I, I think that, as, as Dr. Abbasi said, transparency in that is, is important. And I, I do think we have to accept that all of us have perspectives on which we pursue science. Companies have particular perspectives motivated by a financial interest. And understanding can help you, understanding that can help you to understand a perspective on that. That being said, I think we also have to acknowledge that um, part of the reason we have new drugs and new discoveries is in part because they are developed by people with financial interests, right? And so if we said we can never believe something because there's a financial interest behind it, that would be challenging for us in science. There's right. just that Money reality. is a big motivator and that's okay as long as it's in its proper place. So while we follow this, the authors who are funded, who do the research, if you know the names of those authors, is that a source of bias as to whether you trust the information out of those authors? Dr. Domingo, Bibbins Domingo. So I start with the premise that we are all have biases, that we all, biases are just shorthand ways our brains work to make quick decisions. Um, and they are, um, they are shaped by our perspectives. And the shorthand way when uh, uh, JAMA and the BMJ received literally thousands of submissions of articles, a shorthand way that we say, oh, um, this article might be um, something we want to pay closer attention to might be our experience with those authors in the past, right? Um, that is the reason why for us to do this well, we have to have multiple layers to the process so that we don't get entrenched in the biases. But I think we have to acknowledge and to not acknowledge that we all have perspectives and biases that come into play, I think would be a fiction and uh, better to think through the processes you put in place to make sure that you mitigate against those biases taking hold. Right. And Dr. Abbasi, should there be double-blinded peer review so that the authors <laughs> do not okay. know 
who the reviewers are, as is mostly the case now, and that the reviewers should not know who the authors are. Yeah. There have been a lot of research on that. Yeah. What do you think? I know why you asked me this, uh, Dr. Lundberg, because <laughs> the, <laughs> the BMJ was one of the first journals to have an open peer review process. And in our process, um, the reviewers know who the authors are, the authors know who the reviewers are. In fact, we did uh, a, a couple of randomized control trials to evaluate um, whether open peer review, where everybody knows who everybody is, um, was superior to peer review where uh, you know the authors don't know who the reviewers are. Uh, actually, interestingly, in terms of the comments, we found very little <laughs> difference in terms of the quality of the comments. Um, but on, in terms of on an ethical basis, we decided to pursue open peer review because we believed that was the right thing to do, that in the scientific discourse, each party should know who the other is. Um, and also our judgment was that it improved the quality of the comments as well. Yeah, uh, the, yeah. double blinding is the opposite of transparency, which you were yeah. proposing. The, the Biomed Central group of journals, of course, the VTOC truck started about 20 years ago, is open. Not only do the authors know the reviewers, the reviewers know the authors, and the readers can read the reviewer comments and the author responses, the reviewer comments and what happened in the actual manuscript itself, yeah. all free. Yeah, and that's a lot of, pretty so, powerful package. It, it is, but, but also actually, we do know that blinding in peer review does not work. So, for example, um, okay. if, if reviewers look at a paper and the author's names aren't on the paper, they can more often than not work out who the author is because authors tend to cite themselves a lot. And also the reviewers know who's working on a particular topic. So in a, bl a blinding doesn't work, actually, uh, and, there's, and there's good evidence uh, around that. That's true. So, there have so, been so, good so, studies yeah. that it doesn't work. We have to move ahead. Okay. Uh, we have many more, uh, many more equally contentious issues to deal with. And I want our audience to have the full range of thought about all of these things. Authors work somewhere and the place they work tends to show up on the manuscript and the material. And, uh, and back to the United States, if if the research paper arrives and it's from Harvard or Yale versus it's from Marshall or Eastern Ohio, does it make a difference in how the editors might look at it? I think that is, um, uh, I think, again, as we all have our biases, we're absorbing thousands of in, uh, manuscripts coming into a journal. It is very easy to have a shorthand not to say, oh, I only published from Harvard and Yale, but rather, oh, I've heard of those authors, I've heard of that institution, I know they're doing good work, and that's how those biases get entrenched, right? And it is why, in fact, it's very difficult to completely blind any process, um, because um, we know we, uh, in a scientific community, you know where the work is being done. That's exactly correct. Uh, Dr. Abbasi, if your work comes from Oxford or Cambridge, is it any different? And if it came from Nottingham or Aberdeen? I mean, the reality is, this, I mean, it's a very well-established bias and there's good evidence to support it. That if, if you come from a famous institution, then your work is more likely to be considered favorably. That is a bias in the peer review process and we know it is. And it's a very difficult one to overcome. Um, and uh, you know, one way we try to do overcome that at the BMJ is by trying to focus on the research question. Um, but I'm not saying we're immune to it. It's a very difficult bias to to contend with, but it exists and it's a reality. 
it doesn't mean that the work at Oxford is any better than the work from Nottingham, for example. Okay, let's continue to consider the source. You, anybody, is confronted with information. Where might it be from? Well, it might be a primary source. It might be secondary source. It might be a tertiary source. And each of those serves as a filter, and each of those may also serve as a magnifier of that particular work, depending upon who's doing the secondary sourcing and the tertiary sourcing of the primary source of the, of the information. And then there's the question of, was the information generated by marketing in some kind of way? And what do you, what do you think? Are you prefer something like primary source, go to the actual the authors, the article, their data, the methods, or secondary source when uh, an article is 10,000 words long is made into an article 1,000 words long by a skilled medical writer so that you can understand it since most of your readers don't read your articles. If you're lucky, they read the abstracts or the structured abstract, and they may not understand that either. And tertiary sources, of course, then would be collections of all these things and trying to figure out in a review manner, which may be a systematic review or not. So at which level do you prefer to try to trust? Primary, secondary, tertiary? Uh, well, uh, I, I think, so for me as a scientist, I would want to read the primary sources. I'm also a generalist who tends to want to read on lots of different things, and I'm not going to read all the things that I want to read in as deep of a, a level of detail. Of um, and so there is value, I think, to the, the secondary and the tertiary sources. There's certainly value when we think through um, conveying science for a broader audience than just scientists or the subspecialists in a particular field. And so I think there is value. One of the things that I thought was really interesting at the Peer Review Congress was the way in which language that is used in the primary article gets filtered into these secondary and tertiary. Exactly. <laughs> and I think that there's so much emphasis that we all play in, in journals, not just to vet the science, but also how the science is communicated and contextualized, because those words are in fact what get picked up and amplified in these other sources. And that's where they have both, I think, potentially beneficial effects and then negative effects if we're not careful with that. Okay, let's move from that to the next question question to Dr. Abbasi, which is just as fundamental as these are. I've lived in the Silicon Valley now after I left JAMA in 1999. After a brief tenure in New York and Indiana, I've lived in Silicon Valley. And Google's just down the street. Yes. So that's for 22 years, been watching that. And so we have Dr. Google, Dr. Yahoo, Dr. Bing. I like Dr. DuckDuckGo. Dr. Abbasi, which, which of the search engines do you like to use most or do you try to stay away from them? Uh, we, we have to use a search engine. I mean, life, you can't live life, you know, in the modern world, uh, Dr. Lundberg, without using a search engine, I don't think. Um, uh, do you want me to promote any particular one? I think they all do about this. They do all this. They're all very similar now, aren't they? <laughs> I mean, we all default to Google. I mean, most of us, don't we? Uh, do you trust your ability to filter through what comes out of any of those four search engines and, and find truth? Oh I, I, well, sorry. so we all know that there that that there are algorithms behind our the searches at all of yeah. these search engines to filter them. 
I, I think it's very interesting to think about, for example, what the possibilities are. I heard a talk recently from the, the head of YouTube on trying to create algorithms to amplify trusted sources of information on YouTube so that when you search, you're more likely to get a video that is from a trusted source. And somebody has to call on a trusted source. Well, that's exactly the problem, of course, <laughs> is that, um, you know, we've all know the blue check marks on Twitter and, um, and uh, there were attempts to try to use those as a way to vet what the trusted sources are. Certainly algorithms um, are, are, ha have their, they're built by humans and have their, uh, their, their own uh, biases or proclivities to bring up certain types. And, I think it is a uh, laudable attempt to try to amplify trusted sources of information by doing this, but the devil's in the details, just as you suggest. And from my, my perspective, as somebody who spent most of my life uh, uh, focused on health equity issues, uh, amplifying uh, trusted sources of information that also speak to the broad array of types of audiences that want to be consuming that information is particularly challenging. Yeah, I play the search engines against each other. I come out with a question, and if I really am not happy with what's there, I'll try them all and then see, I'll pick and choose on that. I find, I consider myself an expert on choosing experts. Oh, nice. <laughs> that's, yeah, yeah, that's expertise there, I guess. Now, somebody puts a lot of money into publishing. It's mm -hmm. a big money game. So does it make a difference in your trust into where something appears if it's a large for-profit publisher journal or whatever, or a small for-profit publisher journal, or an association allegedly not-for-profit publisher, does this make any difference to you in terms of trusting the information from that publisher, Dr. Abbasi? Um, the issue is less about who is providing the information. We don't have you know that's that, those kind of systems uh, categories in the UK. I'd like to make a slightly different way, point in, in answer to this. What we what people need to develop is the ability to critically appraise mm -hmm. uh, information and research. I know it's a difficult thing to ask, you know, to to do amongst the public. Even amongst journalists, find it difficult as well. But the point is, there's no guarantee. For example, that a you know one of the top journals will always provide you with trustworthy information. Whereas it might well be that if you go to a smaller journal, there might be very good paper in there. I mean, JAMA actually published a letter many years ago, which suggested that some of the better evidence-based papers uh, were were in the smaller journals. Um, so you can't you know a big name doesn't always equate with the best quality of information so we as individuals have to develop our critical appraisal faculties um, and try to appraise the, the primary source or the tertiary source or whatever the, the level the source is ourselves but of course inevitably there are some brands uh, whether they're for-profit non-profit whatever there are some brands that are that are better trusted than others and 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 you gain trust by consistently providing reliable information uh, that people find valuable that as i say they find it evidence-based transparent and increasingly informed by patients okay i don't even want to go into social media in detail because we don't have enough time left to do that it's <laughs> such a morass Comrade, you've already dealt with a good bit of it. And yeah. I personally use Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, 
and Instagram. I refuse to use TikTok. <clears throat> it's just not my kind of thing. But the deal <laughs> is with all of those, you go to the primary source and you'll you'll find stuff on Facebook that's primary source stuff that's pretty good. You'll find a lot of stuff on Twitter that's primary source. Bob Wachter, your chair here at UCSF, has a tremendous following for his Twitter. He's also lambasted fairly often in terms of what he puts up on Twitter, but I like to read his stuff there. It's quick, quick read. It doesn't take very long to read Twitter. Uh, anyway, and then you have the secondary sources of the New York Times, the Washington Post, CBS, NBC, BBC, The Guardians. Which it, Cameron, do you trust any of those? Um, you trust uh, the Guardian? Yeah, well, I trust I trust a number of those sources. So I think the BBC is a good source. The Guardian is a good source. New York Times is a good source. You, you mentioned some good, good secondary sources there, uh, Doctor Lundberg. But can I just I, can I just give me if you allow me permission just to talk about the social media uh, for for a second? Because we had a very particular case at the BMJ where we uh, we wrote a story, investigation about uh, some trial misconduct, um, where there were some uh, irregularities in the conduct of a vaccine trial. Um, and it was a very straight story. And it was in the point about publishing, it was that we want to protect patients. You know, we, you want trials to be conducted properly because otherwise patients are at risk and patients are at harm, the ones that participate. And what happened was because this trial potentially uh, raised doubts about a vaccine, um, it was marked as disinformation by Facebook. I mean, it's absolutely ridiculous that it, that this was done in that way. Um, and we, 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 we tried to get Facebook to, to change that categor, categorization, um, but they wouldn't do so. I mean, we discovered that their mechanisms uh, to, for appeal and, and to try to get these kinds of labels changed are very, very difficult to progress and to be successful with. So, I, I think there's a big problem that we have to address. I know you don't want to talk about social media, but it's the it's the responsibility of social media giants and the power that they have. And I believe they have a disproportionate power for the level of understanding that they have of science and what makes good science and what makes trustworthy information. So, I mean, Dr. Lundberg, when you're in Silicon Valley with your, you know, if you bump into the CEOs of Facebook and Google, et cetera, I think you should have a word with them about this. I understand the importance, but it's it's unlikely that we three are going to affect that very much. <laughs> I think you might. We three can affect a, a lot of other things very well. Now, I want to do what I did a year ago with the two of you. I'm going to just say a word, and we're asking about trust. Oh, no. And I'm going to ask you to put a thumbs up, a thumbs down. Or a thumbs neutral on these words. You mean Ready? whether we trust the whether those you words trust. trust those? Okay. You trust in, these right, are primary right. source information places, and I want to know whether you they're primary and they're secondary. But but just very quickly, bang 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 bang. Uh, the National Institutes of Health (NIH). You trust? Uh, you're gonna have. Oh, there you go. <laughs> Yeah. Okay. That's not. Is that a thumb? Yeah. Thumbs up. <laughs> it's, it's up. How yeah. about the CDC? Yeah, I think you got to trust. That. It depends on what it is. You know, it depends on what administration it's in. I've lived through many administrations. <laughs> I normally love the CDC, but they've had some problems. How about the NIHR in the UK? Do you trust that? Okay. How about Public Health England? Do you trust it? Yeah, it doesn't exist anymore, Dr. Lundberg. 
Well, then I wouldn't trust it. <laughs> Maybe nobody trusted it. That's why it's not there. How about the World Health Organization? It exists. Trust yeah, or not? You've got to trust it, yeah. I'm here with the WHO. Oh. How about the U.S. Preventive, US Preventive Services Task Force? Disclosure. We say I'm yesterday. the former chair of the U.S. Preventive Services. You ran it for five years, Okay. I'm a great fan of U.S. Preventive <laughs> Task Force. I did the first job of publishing their reports in the 80s in JAMA when Bob Lawrence was in charge of it. I love that. For health information, how about Medline? Mm. See, Medline is 5,000 medical journals pulled out of the 30,000 that exist. We got a thumbs mm, neutral. I get neutral. that because wow. there are 5,000 of them. May, may not all be right. Uh, how about Fox News? I'll give it <laughs> down as far as you can go. How about CNN for health information? Um, well, let's just say a month ago I had trusted it. Yeah. Now I don't know because they're going through some. You got to stay on your toes here. Okay, well, I've got, it looks like I have five minutes left. I, what about JAMA? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> what about JAMA and the DMJ? <laughs> Yeah, okay. <laughs> well, let me say it this way. I'll answer. There, For marketing purposes, there are now 15 JAMAs, but 14 of them have sub-deals. Sub They're specialist journals. I oppose that, but I lost later after I left. <laughs> They're not all JAMA. Now, JAMA gets an acceptance rate of 2 3 4%. The other is... 20, 30, 40%. So, uh, well, not you've got quite. 70 specialist <laughs> journals. Yeah. You've got the BMJ. So, yeah, there's no way you could say you trust those 70s like you trust the BMJ that you have yourself. Well, and if, and, yeah, and then all those journals are putting out tweets. Uh, oh, be careful. Sometimes cataclysms happen from those tweets. Turns now, now you can't now, still science quick, to 140 characters. The concept yes. of preprints. Mm -hmm. Up, neutral, down. I mean, the concept of preprints. Oh, the concept. I think the concept. The concept of preprints. Two ups. Yeah. A preprint is a full journal article that hasn't been published, except it's published as a preprint. And I don't know what the Vancouver Group is going to do with that one because a preprint publication is publication of a form. And that's going to have to be worked out one way or the other. Now, how about special critics? Special critics. What are they? In the U.S. for your UCSF, <laughs> I'm going to give you a name. The guy who's really smart, often right, and always angry and nasty, Pinay Prasad. <laughs> One of your professors. Yes. Do you, you listen to him? Do I listen to him? Yeah. Uh, uh, we have a lot of personalities on, on Twitter. Absolutely. From UCSF. You trust what he says? I, um, I actually, um, I understand the perspectives from, from. Okay, you're waffling. I'm okay with your waffling. Well, what do you mean trust? I, I, I get it. Trust. <laughs> I think we have to, I'm going back to Dr. Abbasi telling me the critical appraisal skills that I need to have. Okay. Right? <laughs> I, mean, I have an equally difficult question, except I don't think there's a conflict of interest. You have, he doesn't. All right. uh, there's a GP up in Scotland named Malcolm Kendrick. Who, who writes one of the best blogs I get, and I get him every week, and he criticizes everything. NICE makes all of its mistakes, and National Health Service, the whole bit. Do you know him? What's your opinion about him? Actually, I've met him, uh, and I got him to talk to us at the BMJ sort of 20 years ago. Um, 
I think he's got a lot of explosive things to say and he has deep insight into the pharmaceutical company industry. I don't know how much of it is true, but I think, I guess yeah. a lot of it is. Yeah, I have found uh, Vinny to be right on on a lot of things and I've found Malcolm to be right on about a lot of things. If they weren't so abrasive, they might have a better chance of having influence, but that's my personal opinion. <laughs> now, now we flip back to me for my clothes, and then we'll flip it to Mr. Hammond. A lot of things are new, and a lot of things are not new and can be remembered from the past. In a journal called JAMA on April 16, 1997, <laughs> Bill Silberg, Masaki, and I wrote this editorial. It's entitled, Assessing, Controlling, and Assuring the Quality of Medical Information on the Internet. 1997, we were inventing ahead of your time. The medical internet at that time, a, a, a small group of us were inventing it. Internet existed, but to make the medical internet, it was us. And the subtitle on this is "Caveant Lector et Viewer." Now, before you raise a fuss, I know the Commonwealth Club people are very informed about Latin, and it's not "caveat," it's "caveant," and that's not a mistake. That's plural. The plural of caveat is caveat. Now, lector, what's that mean? It means reader, viewer. What does that mean? There's no Latin word viewer. What are you talking about? No, there isn't. But if there were, it would be viewer. <laughs> but they didn't have TV back in those days. Anyway, remember, we played games at Jabba. We had fun, and some of the people enjoyed it, and some people didn't understand. <laughs> anyway, that that's a definitive piece in 1997, worth your reading 25 years later. And on the second page, here are the core principles for you, the audience, to try to figure out. What is it when you're reading something or listening to something? What do you want to know? Who wrote that? What's the author? Really? A whole lot of stuff you're given. There's no author. Mm -hmm. Secondary sort, they don't bother. Second, attribution. Where does that author work? Is it a real person or did somebody make that person up? Attribution. Third, disclosure, ownership, sponsorship. I got paid to do this, all that kind of stuff. And fourth, currency. Not money, but how? when was it published? What is the date? And has it been updated? This is the core principles upon which we built the medical internet, including those principles. And that's true. That got inculcated in a, a whole bunch of different things. And finally, we wrote <laughs> our, our ultimate paragraph. I'll only read half of it. Web, quote, publishers, end quotes, of all stripes, ourselves included, should be free to post whatever they like and live with the consequences. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Let a thousand flowers bloom. Mm -hmm. That's in Mao's red book, you may remember. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Let a thousand flowers bloom. We just want those cruising the information superhighway to be able to tell the flowers from the weeds. And that's all we've been talking about today is mm -hmm. how do you tell the flowers from the weeds? Back to Mr. Hammond. Great. And the first first question is, why did you quote Chairman Mao just now? What is your personal relationship? <laughs> My personal relationship? <laughs> not, not at all. All right. Well, we have we have uh, one coming from the internet. Richard Lippin asks, why can't we ban DTC ads on TV? Is DTC? Uh, 
understandable. I don't know. Direct to consumer? Yeah. Why why can't we ban them? Because the United States Congress won't do won't pass the laws. The far, big pharma owns the Congress, the Senate and the House and has owned the president many of the different presidencies. In the last term, the Democrats did pass significant legislation bringing farmers under some control, first time in decades. The DTC came in because of AMA's own television network. AMA was opposed to DTC until the early 1990s, at which point we had our own TV network and we needed drug ads. And to get drug ads to go on a television thing, it had to go to the public as well as to the profession. You can't stop the public from watching public cable television. And so AMA flipped its position. It's always been opposed to -to direct-to-consumer, flipped it in favor so it could bring drug ads itself. And the FDA approved that. David Kessler was the commissioner at that time. We went and talked to him about it. And he said it was okay. We could go ahead and do our medical television. And that never changed back. My position is, and I have editorial positions several different places, that direct-to-consumer advertising of prescription products should not be permitted. That's my view. Do you have a position on that? Uh, uh, I haven't thought about a position, but that makes complete sense to me. I I have to say, um, uh, I can completely understand the direct to consumer as it is very insidious. It is that thing that the patient brings to me. You can never really understand the benefits and harms on the bright, shiny ad, which um, all of the heart failure patients look much healthier and livelier than most of my heart failure <laughs> patients. And so so there is a piece there. I, I frankly am, am as concerned or perhaps even more concerned about the ways in which um, the financial power of, uh, of pharma actually is more insidious in driving things. So when I was the chair of the Preventive Services Task Force, which had its name because of mammography um, guidelines, the first the first group that lobbies us for mammography guidelines is the makers of the mammography machines. Um, and it is, it is very insidious to think through the many ways in which um, companies that profit over particular healthcare recommendations do that in ways you don't see. The direct-to-consumer ads, at least I see and I know where they're coming from. Yeah, do you have direct-to-consumer or do you have industry lobbying in the UK? <laughs> well, first of all, you know, we don't have direct-to-consumer advertising <laughs> in the UK. Uh, but I mean, industry lob- lobbying takes place everywhere, and the evidence on it is very clear that it does influence uh, doctors' decision making. Doesn't matter on the quality of the product. If you market something aggressively to doctors, they prescribe it more. Um, and so, if you're going to market it to patients, they're going to demand it more. So, um, and and if if you if you do that with a product that's potentially harmful, um, then that's that's a very dangerous thing to do. And so. Um, we need lobbying is comes with um, harmful consequences. And then it's one of the big challenges that we face in terms of trying to publish evidence uh, that's that's free of competing interests and lobbying and industry. But it's, it's hard to do. Mr. Hammond. Yes. Uh, so there's another really big question, which is. Do you think that the uh, pandemic this latest COVID pandemic and the speed with which um, there was a medical response to it, which I think created a little bit more transparency. But do you think that that transparency undercut the trust in the system um, because changes had to be made, decisions had to be made? We didn't know at the beginning how dangerous this was going to be. And it 
et cetera, et cetera. So that, that angle is, do you think that that eventually has undercut the trust in the system and, and people's uncertainty about trying to find what's accurate medical information? Yeah, so I think the trust has been undercut in the system, but I'm not sure that I would say that the speed of bringing uh, information out is the source of the rise in mistrust in there. I think there are also benefits of the way in which the scientific communities uh, rallied to put information out, to quickly think through how to vet information, to understand that in the environment of changing science, you need to also uh, um, quickly vet and then uh, and then sometimes uh, go back and say, well, no, that was wrong. Now we think about it this way. That That is a challenging environment. So I would say the rise of mistrust also has to do with, with other forces about uh, that have led to very polarizing ways we think about science and facts. And that um, certainly the speed um, uh, plays into that and the, the, the um, inevitable changing of positions because science evolves. But I think there were other forces that also led to the mistrust. Cameron? Um, yeah, so, I mean, I would challenge your basic assumption that uh, about transparency. I think trust has been a problem because of a lack of transparency. Uh, governments have made decisions without being fully transparent about the advice that they base those decisions on. Um, and also, uh, industry has promoted products uh, without being transparent about the side effects and the potential harms of those products. Now, I'm pro-vaccination. We published lots of studies in the BMJ that, that demonstrate that the COVID vaccines are effective in the real world. But, but even today, we cannot get the data from the pharmaceutical companies about the side effects of the trials that were done uh, on, those, on those vaccines. So, um, and that, that lack of transparency feeds mistrust, feeds hesitancy around vaccines, and that is a problem. And the governments have behaved similarly around their policy making. So I would say, uh, you know, we need more transparency, even more. There hasn't been enough. And that's what's caused a problem with trust and allowed people who are opposed to vaccination, people who are opposed to certain policies to exploit that lack of transparency, to manipulate uh, people, uh, others on social media uh, and, um, and in other settings. I agree with the questioner that timing did matter. I mean, the public wants answers. It needs answers. It's dying like flies all over the place. It needs answers. But science doesn't give clean answers that quickly. And it demanded it. I understood that. But I think kind of what, kind of what we were watching was sausage being made in public. And I like sausage, but I don't like watching it being made. And... <laughs> That's kind of like what we were seeing. Yeah, but but actually on, on the on the it's going to say on the on the other side of that, Dr. Lundberg. I mean, some of the um, trials around particular interventions uh, in relation to COVID. We ran there were, there were many. You know, there was a particular trial, the, the recovery trial in the UK. I mean, that was conducted very very quickly. Had lots of good, uh, out, you know, well reported uh, uh, studies that. Uh, that appeared in medical journals very quickly and reached the, the public and policymakers very, very quickly as a result of how quickly that's, that research was done. So I think, yeah, I mean, science doesn't always lend itself to speed, but there were some very big success stories 
around particular trials during the pandemic that demonstrated that we can do trials quickly and get uh, you know do them properly and get meaningful results from them that have an impact immediately. Right. The new uh, re reinstitution of our FDA director. Uh, I want to paraphrase him or quote him praising the UK and by not praising the US on how the clinical trials were done. The UK, they were organized and sensible. The US, they were massive. Everybody's off doing all kinds of stuff. But a lot of it was was noise and wasted and not necessary. But it's our system. Your system is for its strengths or for its weaknesses, of which there are plenty, it is organized. And it spends money in an organized fashion. And we don't. We, our money comes from all kinds of different places for all kinds of different reasons and ultimately might come out with the right answer, but there's a lot of friction costs in the process. So that's there. These are good questions. Yeah. You question is, uh, Dr. Abbasi uh, mentioned the democratization of the journals. So it also seems to, to the uh, listener that the democratization of the way that we do things, not just in the journals, but just how the advice is taken um, as Dr. Lombard has just said, in the United States, it was done one way. In another place, it was done in the UK, it was done in a or, more organized way. We, medicine, is, especially to come to the final answer or the good answer, is sort of an organized authoritarian system to some extent. But we're all moving towards more democratization of all kinds of things. And it seems to me, uh, us, you know, uh, that there's a large number of people who are going to. Uh, want that authoritarianism back that just tells you what the answer is and stops asking you to go out and do critical thinking. And so so I guess how is there any political thing that the medical establishment can do to to ride that wave a little bit more smoothly? Um, you've, you've brought up so many important issues in that question uh, as the time runs down. I, I do think we, we have to acknowledge that there is some, that there, that there is value to the democratization of the scientific process, to the democratization of information, to, um, um, to, the, to the very fact that as we're communicating as scientists, we're communicating at all times to an entire, um, an entire public that also is able to critique and understand that science. And uh, that process is, in fact, good. It, and to the extent that it, we are transparent about that, it also, I think, will lead ultimately to, to better science. Uh, the challenge, though, is that the flip side of it is that you have to sort through a lot of information to get at what the right thing is. And things were much simpler when uh, you had a doctor telling you or you had a few journals telling you this is the, authoritar this is the authoritative final word on, on what truth is. That, and so we have to, in this time, um, uh, wrestle with the, uh, the, the benefits of the democratization and, and then try to understand how we can really still promote those things that help us to understand where what are the trusted sources. And that final word was sometimes not the final word <laughs> because <laughs> 10 years later, a whole bunch of other stuff was found and, uh oh, we were wrong. Yes. And we exactly. have to admit that. Now, it comes back to one other thing. We, uh, we got thumbs up from both of you, the preprint. I thought I was horrified by a preprint when it first started being used. And now I'm a fan of it because... All of us know that the most important peer review is post-publication peer review, when lots of people could crowdsource the information. And the preprint allows 
that kind of crowdsourcing of information before it's officially published can be withdrawn, can be scuttled, it can be pretended it never happened, or it can be sent to proper peer review, revised, and then published in a real form. And we don't yet have a good scientific study of how many preprints are actually withdrawn, revised, ultimately published, same form, different form, whatever. That's a very pregnant question awaiting answer, which shouldn't be that hard to do. It's a matter of the end and not losing sight of the end. And I don't lose sight of that zero out there. We Mr. Have, Hammond, it's back little, to you. We'll add a little bit more time because this is such a good question for Dr. Abbasi. Uh, so Dr. Abbasi, the question is on this authoritarian democracy issue. The queen has just passed away. Um, and she is certainly a sign of the authoritarian past, um, but she also is something loved. And, and so we kind of, uh, and, and not just in England. So it's kind of interesting that as she passed, um, that this whole issue is, is happening. And she was a, a, a sign of the good side of authoritarianism, so to speak, uh, to some people. And, not, and just because it, she stands for the past and colonial past, not in many other cases. So how do you feel that the differences in this uh, switchover in England compared to the United States? Wow, I think that's <laughs> you've asked me the most difficult <laughs> right. question of the evening. Um, okay, um, <laughs> look, I think, I think, I think, look, I think one thing the the Queen did, it was evident. You know, she was always open to ideas, to information, to talking to people, to sharing information, um, and she often spoke very honestly about her experiences. And I, and I believe the way. King Charles has started that he will continue that, um, and 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 it goes back partly to the the previous question. Well, you asked about information and the democratization of information, whether that would lead to people going back to the way things were. I don't think so. I think there's an unstoppable momentum, whether you're a king or a queen or a member of the public, in terms of sharing information and access to information. Um, but you will still require to understand what trusted what the trusted sources are and that this goes back to some of the questions Dr Lundberg was asking to try to then help you make sense of all of that information that's out there but what has changed uh, is that you know in the past you only had your doctor to rely on for that information and for advice now you of course you rely and you should trust your doctor but equally, if there's something in that relationship that you don't agree with and in, in that decision making you don't agree with, you can go to preprints, to what's in medical journals, to other sources to find out for yourself and then come back to your physician with that information. So you're able to challenge in a way. And, and, and we also know that that process ends up in delivering better care for patients and, and it has to be encouraged. So, um I think you know if we go back you asked you began by asking me the question about about the queen and and the monarchy well I think um as the monarchy opens up I think that's a kind of reflection on how society continues to open up and that can only be a good thing Dr Lundberg final words well thanks for the opportunity to do this I'm hoping we can have a 13th in about a year <laughs> great <laughs> well, we'll, we'll give the uh the final word then to Margot Channing. Uh, 
everyone buckle their seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy ride as we as we go from authoritarianism to democracy. And I don't think it will be done in our lifetimes. So yeah, democracy thumbs up. Democracy oh, yeah. thumbs up. Yes. Thumbs up. Big, big <laughs> thumbs up. Yeah. So thank you very much for coming. And so it's another event at the Commonwealth Club in its 120th year of enlightened discussion. Thanks for joining us. We hope to see you again soon.